pretty loose connection, just so I could use that story to open this morning. The man with the big house valued work, and he wanted the homeless man to value it too. And now here we are on Labor Day weekend, and what do we do? Most of us take the day off work, don't we? On this day that we have to honor the value of work and workers. Someone must have forgotten to put up the uh, Labor Day decorations here in our church. After all, it is Labor Day Eve. Many of us will be opening our Labor Day gifts tonight, huh? I know there's some of you who will like to wait till Labor Day morning to open the gifts. Have you gotten all your Labor Day cards out? Everybody get your Labor Day cards out? And of course, don't you just really love listening to the Labor Day carols, huh? It just really gets into the spirit of the season, doesn't it? Well, of course not. We don't think of Labor Day like many other holidays, do we? We don't even really think of this particular holiday for its original founding purpose. You know, it was made a national holiday in 1894. Its purpose was to honor America's workers, particularly those who worked for labor unions. And it always had a labor union flavor, actually, from day one. Today, however, we think of Labor Day as the three-day weekend that marks the last blast of summer for most people. The only trappings that we really associate with Labor Day are not cards or gifts or songs or decorations. It's more like sunscreen, beaches, and another day to sleep in. That's what we think of. Of course, a day off work. It's not a good weekend for churches either, is it? Look at all the seats of the people who are getting away for their last summer getaway of the season, and they got out of town this weekend. Amazingly enough, even the greeting card companies, you know, they managed to capitalize on almost any kind of holiday you can think of, but they haven't quite figured out how to get people to send Labor Day cards to each other just yet. So there's no real Christian reason to mark this holiday, but there is a very clear biblical reason to understand our labor, our work, and its relationship to our Lord and our faith in Christ. God cares about our work, whatever that may be. And you know what? He claims it as his own. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be spending some time in this passage of Scripture here this morning. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 22. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Well, at first glance, you might look at this passage of Scripture and think, hey, that has nothing to do with our work, has nothing to do with our jobs in this day and age. It's all about slaves. It's all about masters. And of course, yes, that is the immediate context of this particular passage of Scripture. But I don't think it's a stretch at all for us to say that if Paul admonished slaves to do their work well and with sincerity of heart and to do their work as if they were working for the Lord and not for men, then how much more would such an admonition apply to those of us who are being paid to do a job? Think about it. We can scarcely imagine the menial, demeaning, and wretched tasks that slaves did 
in these times. Yet God himself regarded such work as being done for him. So again, even though we can see that this passage was originally written to slaves and their masters, Christ introduced both parties, both slaves and their masters, to a higher dimension in their work, to an overriding set of obligations. Jesus reminded them that he was Lord of their specific work environment. When we consider the relationship between bosses and workers versus slaves and masters, clearly those relationships are not exact parallels. However, I think we can see when we apply Paul's teaching here, it does relate to many kinds of work situations. There's still a lot of struggle, even to this day, between labor and management, between employers and employees. There's conflict. There are accusations of selfishness and unreasonableness. Sometimes employees don't want to work as hard. They want fewer hours. They want more vacation. They want more pay. They want more benefits. Employers want more productivity, and they want more profits. So from God's viewpoint, what do we do about this? How are we to think about this? How should we as followers of Christ view our work and then conduct ourselves in the workplace? How should we handle those problems that inevitably surface whenever people interact on any level, in almost any kind of context, but especially in a situation where one of the parties has some power over the other? I think these are worthy questions, and I really do believe that Scripture has some answers. So I don't think it's unreasonable to take this passage and insert the idea of workers and employees. So the passage, if we were to paraphrase it, might sound something like this, Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. Employees, obey your bosses in everything. And do this not only when your boss is watching you and to win his favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your employer, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So again, if such an admonition applies to slaves, it must also apply to carpenters, to janitors, to accountants, to secretaries, to fast food workers, to salesmen, to computer programmers, teachers, nurses, homemakers, counselors, construction workers, students, and so on and so on. In other words, I don't think it leaves any of us off the hook. It really applies to all of us in some way. There are a lot of implications for us as followers of Christ if we seek to apply the things in this passage to our daily tasks. First of all, it tells us who our real boss is. Some of us have bosses that are great to work for. Some of us work for people who really might help us relate to this idea of slaves and masters because they make us feel like slaves. Now, most of us are somewhere in the middle. We might not work for a slave driver, but often our bosses or supervisors do leave a little bit, at least a little bit, to be desired. But Paul's telling us here that this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of boss your boss is, because whoever supervises you is not your real boss. He or she is only a delegate of your real boss. So whether or not your boss recognizes that he or she is not really the boss, we as followers of Christ are to do our work 
in such a way that reflects the reality that we are working for our real boss, we are working for the Lord, and not for that boss who just happens to supervise us in our individual jobs and maybe signs our paycheck. This understanding alone, even without all the other elements that we see in this passage, if we were to just stop there, this has tremendous implications. Paul says you need to go to work every day as eagerly as you would if Jesus were your personal supervisor. Go about that work as if you were typing that letter for Jesus to sign, programming that computer for Jesus to run, building that house for Jesus to live in. There's no doubt at all that if Jesus really were your boss, you'd be willing to obey without argument and without delay. You would try to give your best all day long. Paul says that's how a Christian should serve his superior. We see in this passage in Colossians some very real, very practical elements in our daily work. For example, in verse 22, we see this. Very few of us have jobs where our bosses see everything we do. They see what we do every minute of every day, every task. Most of the time, we're given tasks that are part of our job, and at least some, if not most of those tasks, are done out of the sight of our boss. Now, in many of our jobs, our bosses can clearly see the results that tell him or her whether or not we're doing what we've been paid to do. But the reality is, if we're so inclined, you know what? We can get away with stuff, can't we? If that's our bent, we can kind of get away with that. We can get away with some level of laziness. We can get away with some level of half-heartedness in our work. In most of our jobs, if we cut a few corners just once in a while, if we sat around for a few minutes when we're not taking a break and we're entitled to do that, or if we surfed our Facebook pages, or if we played computer solitaire for a few minutes, or watched that funny YouTube video at a time, again, when we're not on a break and entitled to do something like that, or when we're supposed to be doing something else, if we did those things, our bosses wouldn't know, would they? They probably wouldn't know. We might actually be able to get away with it without threatening our jobs. As Christians, Paul is telling us that our work calls for a level of integrity in our work that might not otherwise come naturally to us. That's why we started with the idea of remembering who our real boss is. We are to obey our supervisors, our bosses, and everything, even when they're not watching us, even when they can't see what we're doing. This is a perfect illustration using the workplace context of how the person you really are, not the one you claim to be, is revealed when no one else is around. Do we do the right thing when no one else can see? Do we work well when no one else sees that we're working hard and working well? This is a temptation for all of us to slack off when no one is watching. But when we do that, it shows that we're doing what the King James Version of these verses calls eye service, or we're just men-pleasers. This is an expression that only Paul uses in the New Testament, and he only uses it in two places. He uses it here in this passage in Colossians, and he also uses it in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, where he writes this, Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. 
Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is almost a parallel passage to the verses that we're looking at this morning in Colossians, reiterating many of the very same ideas. So we can't use the argument, well, it's only in this one passage of Scripture. Gee, Bill, you're pulling it out of context. We see it here again. We see it again and again, actually, in Scripture. So we're to do our jobs well, whether or not we're being monitored. We don't do them just to gain our boss's favor, and we do it with sincerity of heart. Or as the King James Version of this says, singleness of heart. Singleness of heart. It indicates a singleness of purpose. When we're working, even in our secular jobs, or in our home, or in our classroom, we're to do all these things with this kind of attitude of heart. Why? Well, again, it's because ultimately we're not serving our earthly boss. Ultimately, we're not even doing it primarily for the paycheck. We're doing it for the Lord. We're serving the Lord. We're doing what we do as if we're doing it for the Lord himself. Think about this for a second. Can you see if we really adopted this, if we really took this seriously, if we really took this to heart, how this would revolutionize the workplace? Can you imagine that? Bad attitudes in the workplace are legendary. It's very common to join a conversation in an office or some sort of workplace and hear people complaining about almost every aspect of their jobs. Everybody looks forward to the weekends or days off because we don't have to work on those days. Now, admittedly, there is a cycle of work and rest that we ignore at our own peril, but for many people, they only work because they have to. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That's the attitude. They need the money, right? Can you imagine how if we really took seriously the ideas in these passages of Scripture, how it would revolutionize our own attitudes toward work, and how if it spread, it could truly impact the places where we work, not just our own hearts, but our workplace. Well, some of you may be sitting there and thinking, well, gee, Bill, You don't understand. You don't get it. You don't work where I work. You don't know how difficult my boss can be. He's a total pagan, and he curses constantly, and he degrades people. You don't have to put up with the kinds of people that I work with. That might be what some of you might be thinking here this morning. And, of course, you know what? That's true. I don't walk in your shoes. But I will tell you that I have worked in difficult places. You know, some of you may know that this is not what I've always done. I haven't always worked at TCF, where I work with great people. And it's tremendous every day, honestly. I think most of you know that I worked for more than 20 years in the secular work world, and I've worked for for difficult people, and I've worked with difficult people. And I admit that when I was there, I didn't always have the best attitude about my work. So in some ways, I really do understand, and I can relate to you, and I can commiserate if you're one of those people that says, hey, I work with a bunch of pagans. But let's not dwell on whether or not I understand. That's not really important here anyway. Let's look at what the Scripture says. 
Let's remember Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel worked for a pagan too, didn't he? He wasn't treated fairly either. And one of his bosses, who happened to be the CEO of that organization, also known as the king, unjustly threw him into a lion's den, despite his faithful service to the boss. Now, some of your bosses may have mistreated you, but did anybody here ever get thrown into a lion's den by your boss? Figuratively, some of you are thinking, yeah, I've been there. I've been in that den. But Daniel not only faithfully served his boss, his boss almost innately seemed to know that Daniel's real boss was not the king, but the king of kings. If we look in Daniel chapter 6, verse 20, it tells us what the king said when he came to this lion's den to see what had happened to Daniel. It says, when he came near the den, referring to the king, when he, the king, came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Well, of course, God did rescue Daniel from death. But the point is, isn't it interesting that Daniel worked in a pagan environment? He worked in a pagan office. He worked for a pagan king. And yet one thing the pagan king knew about Daniel was that Daniel served God continually. See how having an attitude that when we do our work, we're doing it for the Lord can have an impact in the workplace? In this, place, the, in this case, the workplace was the whole country. Do your co-workers know that about you? Do your co-workers know that about you? Do they know that you serve the Lord continually? Do they know, as the king knew about Daniel, that you serve God continually? And I guess continually would probably have to include your work life, wouldn't it? Do they know that about you not because you've been thumping your Bible at them, but because your work is excellent, because your attitude towards your work is godly, because your demeanor in all circumstances is Christ-like. Also, when you're tempted to think, well, the Apostle Paul never had to work with my boss, let's remember who Paul's addressing this to here in Colossians and even the passage in Ephesians. He's writing this to people who were literally, physically owned by another person. They were slaves. Now, none of us can truly understand what that's like. We can only imagine. So if we work for a difficult boss or with challenging people, you know, we can escape at the end of the day. We can find a respite maybe with our Christian friends or with our family. We can find some support from them. But a slave is always a slave. We might work 40 hours, and in some tough, tough jobs, we might work 50, 60, 70 hours a week once in a while. But Paul was writing to slaves, and they were slaves 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is who Paul is addressing in this letter to the Colossians and in his letter to the Ephesians we just read as well. And Paul didn't cut the slaves any corners here. He didn't say, well, gee, I know you're slaves, so maybe these kinds of things don't need to apply to you, so just kind of do your best. That's not what he said. Isn't it interesting to note the amount of space devoted in the New Testament to slaves? This isn't without significance. It shows that no matter how low a person's social status may be, he can still attain the very highest in the Christian life through faithfulness to the Word of God. Perhaps it also reflects the foreknowledge of God that most Christian people 
would occupy places of service rather than positions of authority. For instance, there is very little instruction in the New Testament that refers to rulers of nations, but there is considerable advice for those who devote their lives in the service of others. So when our work lives are difficult, we could easily and almost understandably be tempted to slack off when the boss isn't looking. We might in our minds try to justify this idea. Well, after all, he or she treats me this way. They don't pay me enough. Why should I work hard? It's okay if I slack off once in a while, but again, we have to ask that question. Who's our real boss? Who's our real boss? And if we're really doing our work as unto the Lord, who are we cheating when we slack off or we don't do our jobs well? Whatever we do, we are to do it as if we're doing it for our Lord. In every form of Christian service, as well as in every sphere of life, there are many tasks which people find obnoxious. Anybody here ever done any obnoxious tasks on your workplace? I think most of us probably have. Needless to say, we try to avoid such work. But this verse teaches us the very important lesson that the humblest service can be glorified and dignified by doing it for the Lord. In this sense, there's no difference between secular and sacred work. All is sacred. Rewards in heaven will not be for prominence or apparent successes. They will not be for talents or opportunities, but rather for faithfulness. This touches on another line of thinking that we sometimes fall into. We tend to think that there's the secular on the one hand, and then there's the sacred or spiritual on the other. We tend to create a false divide between these two things, and I think that's a very common mistake. And it can lead to some real problems in our Christian life, especially in the workplace. If we come here together to worship the Lord on Sundays, to hear his word preached, and then we live like hell the rest of the week, what kind of faith is that? I don't believe God divides up our week that way. If what we learn here on Sundays does not impact the way we live our lives, if it does not impact the choices we make the rest of the week, I think we're in trouble. One of the things I think this passage is telling us is there is no such division between the secular and the spiritual because Paul says, whatever you do. And if you think about it, whatever could really include a lot more than we're focusing on just this morning. can include a lot more than just our work. Colossians 3.23 tells us that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And the parallel passage in Ephesians says it this way, serve wholeheartedly. The New American Standard of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, says, with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men. So we're to serve wholeheartedly, and we're also to do it with good will. So we not only have to do it wholeheartedly, we have to do it with good will. We're supposed to have a good attitude about it. This speaks to our attitude, doesn't it? Goodwill is to be the principal virtue of a slave toward his master, a real regard to his master's interest as if his own, a goodwill which not even a master's severity can extinguish. This is a pretty high standard, isn't it? This is a pretty high standard. A faithful Christian doesn't just do the minimum his job requires, much less work only when his supervisor is watching. In fact, he shouldn't need to be checked up on at all because he always does the work to the best of his ability whether or not anyone is around. 
And he works just as hard when he's passed over for a raise or promotions as when he's being considered for them. He does his work with sincerity of heart, with all his heart. There are many other things we could look at related to this idea of our work and our faith. But let me just briefly touch on a few of these ideas before we close and begin to enjoy the rest of our Labor Day weekend and take Labor Day off. We need to be reminded that how we work and the attitude we display in our work reflects on Jesus. It reflects Jesus. It reflects him well or it reflects him poorly. It either helps to provide us opportunities or it ruins any opportunities that we could have to share Christ. Think about it for a second. Would you listen to the testimony of a Christian who does lousy work, someone who's careless, or one who's always complaining about his boss or complaining about other coworkers? If someone is a lazy employee or they disobey the workplace rules, if someone sneaks off with office supplies for personal use, are you going to be inclined to listen to them when they begin to talk about the gospel? They lose all kinds of credibility, don't they? These kinds of behaviors and attitudes can destroy any opportunities you have to share your faith with your boss or with your coworkers. The only way for you to have a position of positive influence is to live your life in such a way that shows you are different from the other employees. The Lord revealed this to me many times in my jobs through the years. He revealed it to me in a couple of ways. First, I saw that I didn't always have to say something to someone for them to know that I was a follower of Christ. Now, please don't hear me say, don't speak, okay? But you don't always have to say something. One time I went into the office of the president of my largest client, and he was on the phone. He saw me at the door, and he kind of waved me in to have a seat, and then he turned in his chair facing away from me to finish his conversation. His conversation was filled with, shall we say, many four-letter words, and not one of them was work. A few minutes later, he finished his call, and he turned his chair around, and he kind of looked momentarily startled, as if he'd briefly forgotten that I was sitting there in his office hearing the things that he was saying. And he said, I'm sorry, I know you're a good Christian, and you don't use such language. Well, at this point in my relationship with this man, I had never said anything to him about my faith. I had not said a word. And I certainly had never commented on, let alone chastised him for his potty mouth. But he knew. We'd spent enough time together, he'd been around me enough, that he knew somehow, I do believe that there come times when we can and must speak, okay? But our relationship with our coworkers starts with the way we live our lives. The other thing I believe the Lord revealed to me a few times in my work was that I was the only Christian in the lives of some of my coworkers. I was the only Christian influence. What an awesome, really kind of scary responsibility that was. But I believe God revealed that to me. Coupled with that was the prompting to pray. Now, I'm blessed. I know that many of you pray for me. And I have many other family members and friends that do too. But imagine having a sense that this person that you work with every day really only has one person who's praying for them, and that's you. One more thing. I've spoken exclusively this morning 
to employees because that's where most of us live. But I also know that maybe some of you are bosses. Maybe you're a little of both, depending on what your job looks like. You have the same motivation and the same goals that your an employee and employer have the same motivation and same goals. That is the first and foremost thing as a supervisor is to please the Lord, to do your work as if you're doing it for the Lord. If you're the boss in some settings, the same admonition applies to you as applies to employees. To do God's will, to do your work as if you're doing it for Jesus, to display Christ-like character in everything you do. Just as Christian employees should be the absolute best employees in any organization, Christian bosses and supervisors should be the best too, should be reflecting the character of the one they follow in all their attitudes, in all their actions. In some ways, I think we've slipped into the same mindset about work that we've adopted from our culture about marriage and having children. That is, we bought into the culture's idea that our marriages, that our children, our work are supposed to make us happy. They're supposed to make us fulfilled. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with finding some satisfaction, some measure of joy and satisfaction in your marriage, your family, and even in your work. But I think sometimes we go about it the wrong way. We're trying to change our work to make us happy. And sometimes God wants to use our work to change us, just like he wants to use our children to change us, just like he wants to use our marriages to change us. Most of us spend at least a third of our weekdays working. If you add that up, it's a whole lot of hours in our lives, isn't it? If we're relying on that for our sense of satisfaction, for our worth, for our joy, we will inevitably be disappointed. But if our goal is to glorify the King of Kings, if our satisfaction and fulfillment is rooted and grounded in our relationship with Jesus, then the satisfaction we will find in our work at that point, it's gravy. It's a byproduct, not of our relationship with our work, but of our relationship with our Lord. Let's remember that. Tomorrow, as we all, most of us, I'm assuming there's probably at least a few here who might have to work tomorrow, but most of us are going to take the day off tomorrow. Let's remember these things as we rest, as we enjoy the Labor Day holiday, and then return to our places of employment or our classrooms on Tuesday with a renewed sense of who our real boss is. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very clear admonition that we are to do everything as if we are doing it for you. We pray, Father, that you would burn this into our spirits in a new and a fresh way as we approach our workplace. Father, help all of us who are Christian employees in any kind of workplace to be absolutely the best workers in that place. Help there never to be anything about us that people can say about laziness, about half-hearted work, about complaining or grumbling. May these things be far from us, Lord, as we serve you, our real boss, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit you are able to equip us to be your servants in whatever we do. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would indeed 
enable us and equip us to be good, effective workers and to be good, effective servants of the King of Kings in whatever setting we find ourselves, whether it's in the workplace, our neighborhoods, our classrooms, or wherever. Father, help us to serve you with whole hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.